Did you grow up in a household where it was impolite to talk about money? Do you ever feel shame about how much money you have or don't have or wished you had? Have you ever noticed that no matter how much money you make, you still are feeling anxiety around money? Or have you ever felt shame or guilt about a decision you made with money, especially in your health? If so, today's podcast is for you. On today's episode, we're talking with financial therapist Lindsay Bryan Podvin about the emotional side of money. Money is way more than just a budget and spreadsheet. Money is also about the thoughts and emotions we have behind it, our history with it, our relationship with it, and how all of that is impacting our future. On today's episode, we talk about forgiving ourselves and our financial mistakes, what financial perfectionism and financial procrastination is, making values-based decisions around your money, where our money mindset even comes from, how to combat financial anxiety, and so much more. I'm so excited to bring you today's podcast episode because money impacts everything in our lives. And while on this podcast, we focus very often on the nitty gritty science behind gut health and all the gut health problems, a lot of times the things that hold us back in our physical health is merely the willingness and opportunity to invest financially in our health. I'm so excited for today's podcast, you guys. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Better Belly Podcast, where we find freedom from food restrictions, we increase energy in our lives, and we begin to feel more healthy and vibrant than ever by finding the root causes of our health problems. My name is Allison Jordan. I'm a marathon runner, functional medicine, health coach, certified craniosacral therapist, gut health nerd, lover of Jesus, and owner of Better Belly Therapies, a clinic based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that works with both virtual and local clients to help them achieve the best health of their life. I am here to walk with you on your journey to a better belly and a better life. We're going to go beyond popping a probiotic and just checking out our poop. In this show, we are going to go deep into gut transformation strategies that last for your entire life. If you are ready to feel your best, get ready to roll. You are in the right place. And just as a reminder, this information is not meant to diagnose, manage, or treat disease. Always consult with your own health practitioner before you make any changes to your health. Awesome, guys. Well, today we have Lindsay Brian Podvin on the podcast. And Lindsay is a money coach. Did I say that correct? So I'm a financial therapist. Financial therapist. Ah, yes. I, I, I knew I had this slightly term. You are a financial therapist, which is something that people have never potentially ever heard of before. So I would love for you to actually share Lindsay, what is a financial therapist? Yeah. Well, as, as you kind of pointed out, a lot of people don't know what this is and it is kind of what it sounds like, which is that a financial therapist has a background and training in clinical psychology, social work, counseling. So my background is in clinical social work, and then they have additional training in the emotional and psychological side of money. So while we provide information on 
the basics of personal finance and financial literacy. A study in 2006 found that 85% of our decisions around money are emotionally based. So this is kind of that missing gap in the way that we talk about money, because so often the, the information we get about money is that it's just about a budget or just about a spreadsheet and you should stop being emotional. But that's a little bit short-sighted. And instead of saying, you know, divorce yourself from your emotions with money, my job as a financial therapist is to say, what are those emotions with money and how can we help work with them and be kind to them and be curious about them so that you can have a healthier relationship with your money? So my work is less about how to create a budget and more about what are the emotions and the thoughts that are getting in the way of you or sticking to your spending plan. Yes. And I mean, that makes me so excited. You know what I hear this because as we've been talking on our podcast, like our money mindset, our sense of our finances can really affect if we are diving into our fullest extent and investing in ourselves. And that can be, you know, for us, it's really investing in health because health, like it gives back to you. Right. And for you, you're probably working with people on all sorts of stuff. And I've actually heard you talk a little bit about it. So I don't want to give away too much, but, um, why don't we just start with even what led you to your work? I always love asking people, is that a first question? Yeah. So what led me to my work is that I was financially privileged and finished my master's degree in social work with no student loans. And then when I got my first job as a social worker with a master's degree, I earned less money than I did as a waitress. And I had so much guilt and so much shame and so much frustration that I came from a financially privileged background. I did what the, you know, society tells us to do, you know, go to college, study, work hard, whatever, and then get a job. I had done those things and I was living paycheck to paycheck. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm here. I am with uh, an incredible amount of economic privilege. And I feel like I'm wasting it. What's wrong with me that I am living paycheck to paycheck? Why do I care about money if I'm a social worker? Why is that important to me? But then also just the stress of living paycheck to paycheck was not okay. So I had all of these things kind of happening and I was wrestling with all of these different emotions. And so I started figuring out how can I avoid living paycheck to paycheck? And so I turned toward the handy dandy library and checked out a bunch of books on personal finance and started reading information on it. And the more that I learned, the more comfortable I felt in my my financial situation. I was able to figure out a budget or a spending plan that worked for me. And I was able to start spending again in alignment with the things that were important to me, like saving money for travel, like going out to dinner. And you, I found I could only save so much. I could only cut my spending so much. At the end of the day, a, a, a better way to feel in more control of my relationship with money was to earn more money. And so I did get another job still in the field of social work, but that it paid a bit better. And that gave me the breathing room to realize that, yes, we can cut our spending and we can scrimp and we can save, But at the end of the day, another part of that equation is earning more. So kind of just wrestling with all of these feelings of, again, 
oh, what does it mean if I have to earn more money? Am I being a greedy capitalist? And then at the same time, it's a lot easier to not be living paycheck to paycheck. So struggling with all of those emotions around it. And I knew that in my work as a clinical social worker, I specialized in depression and anxiety. A lot of my clients were coming to me with money worries, Mm. but my job as a social worker was to say, Hey, why don't you call this 800 number and and they can help you negotiate your bills? Or why don't you call, you know, this, you know, um, loan consolidation company and they can reconsolidate your loans. And I just felt like that was, (laughs) we are missing something, right? I'm sitting here with these clients. We're talking about their mental health symptoms. They're bringing up to me that they're stressed about money. And I was saying, go talk to someone else when I knew in my own life, how important it was to dig into the emotional side of money, to dig into the shame, to dig into the guilt, to dig into what were the stories that I told myself about money. So around that time, I started looking for additional training that would allow me to ethically provide my clients with a space to talk about money that allowed me to still stay in my lane, my lane being a mental health care clinician. So I got additional training in financial social work and in financial therapy and was able to start providing emotionally focused, um, an emotionally focused look at the way we engage with our money. So that is how I ended up in the field of financial therapy. Yeah. So first off you, you walked the walk, you walk the talk, like you, you were driven to this because you were in that place as well, where money, money causes emotions where you have lots of, whether you have lots of it or little, or just somewhere in between. Right. And so you were in a certain place where you were living paycheck to paycheck. You learned the strategies of it, but then you just found all these emotional aspects too. And I find that, I mean, money and having enough money and like losing your job and all those, all those, uh, you know, kind of economic factors are one of the most stressful things we can ever experience. So of course, if you're, you know, a mental health counselor, like that's going to be really impactful to your work. Uh, Mm -hmm. if, if the people you're working with feel financially sound or don't have financial stressors, um, one of the things that you, and, and I want to even bring up like Actually, we'll wait. We'll wait to bring this up a little bit later. So, um, one of the things that you talked about, you have this like, you told me that there's something called financial anxiety, and you gave like a really great description of it. So, could you tell me what is financial anxiety? Sure. So, financial anxiety is a feeling of being on edge, nervous, or worried in relationship to your money. And anybody can experience financial anxiety regardless of how much money they have or how much money they earn. And financial anxiety can lead us to make not so wise decisions with our money. It tends to kind of manifest in in one of two ways, either perfectionism or procrastination. And, And financial perfectionism can look like trying to do things the exact right way with our money, and that can sometimes backfire. And then financial procrastination can look like putting off really important things in relationship to your money because you're worried about it. So financial anxiety is not something that is cured when you earn a certain amount of money or when you have a certain amount of money in the bank, you cope with it by, again, addressing the emotions behind it and really sitting with what is leading me to feel like I have to be perfect with money and what is leading me to feel like I can't face my money. 
That is super interesting. The procrastination piece is really interesting. That's something that we see a lot with our clients um, or that like, even I've seen with myself of like, uh, I actually have a business coach and I'll even throw that this in here where she asks you, is there anything you're putting off doing in your business? Like any, basically even specifically, she brings up like equipment, like, is there equipment that's broken that you're not repairing and you're putting off? And she's like, that is load. Like it's slowing you down. And so I actually had a printer that just wasn't connect. It was super old. It wasn't connecting to my computer anymore. I was like, just for sure. I'm just going to find the driver. I'm going to, I tried so many things and I couldn't get my husband to fix it. And ultimately I was like, this is a money problem. Like, as in (laughs) not necessarily like I have enough money. It was like, I, if I paid money, I actually know a really good printer I could buy. Like, cause my parents have it. It's like, I, it's not even like, I don't know what I would buy. It's like, I know exactly what I would buy. I know exactly how it'll work. It'll upgrade and solve everything and make all my printing problems go away. And I just sat there and I was like, okay, we're buying the dang thing right now. And that, that can happen in our health too, of like, um, you know, well, there's this person I know I could work with or whether it's a personal trainer or there's this like shoes, running shoes. I'll do, I'm, I'm just, I'll let me bear my own, (laughs) just throw all this stuff out there because like it happens with everyone. I see it happening Mm -hmm. to myself of like, um, I love to run and I know that therefore like having good, just like exercise clothing is important that it doesn't have holes or that it fits or all this jazz. And, um, my running shoes get worn down pretty fast and I will just wear them for so long. And eventually I just look at them. I'm like, Allison, you're giving yourself, you know, 10th best because you don't want to go and spend money on a new pair of running shoes. And it's something I love to do. It's not like I'm just buying mm-hmm. shoes to buy shoes. Like, <laughs> and so I just, I love that there's that perfectionism of like, maybe I should, do you feel like saving is involved in that too? Like got to save more, got to like, can't spend a cent over budget, all that jazz. Is that more of the perfectionism? Yeah, it, it definitely comes out in both ways. And I think oftentimes they're related. Like procrastination is sometimes like the shadow of perfectionism in that we might put off doing a money related task because we're worried we won't do it perfectly. So if you think about like investing in your health, we might put off going to see somebody who can help us because we're worried that we might choose the wrong person and then make a money mistake. And so we just don't make that choice at all. So I think sometimes it's one or the other, but sometimes it's both. Wow. And you help people with this. You like, yeah, like that's, it's your job to like, if they're kind of, if you're kind of sitting here being like, I'm overwhelmed by money, both like making more, making less, how much I have all that jazz, like that's your specialty, which I'm just jazzed about because money is, I feel like the other thing that, and I would be interested if you have any more thoughts on this. I feel like people are more willing to talk about politics and religion May, and, and I think even more so like sex, even now is like getting thrown in there. You can talk about those three things, but don't talk to me about my money. Don't t- let's not talk about money. <laughs> like, how is that? Do you feel like that's true in your case? And how does that impact your clients when you work with them? Yeah. First of all, it's not just your thought. There are studies <laughs> that show that people would rather talk about those three things than wow. talk about money. Wow. Um, and it's, it, it, the whole reason my kind of pocket of therapy exists is because money is one of the greatest stigmas left, even though we all interact with it. We all have to earn money. We all have to spend money. We all loan it, lend it, save it, right? 
but we all pretend like it's just magically sorting itself out. We don't like talking to others about it. We often grow up in households where we're told money is impolite to talk about, um, or we're, you know, people with money get demonized, right? If you grow up in a household where others have money and you don't, you're often told like, well, they're just, you know, greedy, wealthy people. Or on the flip side, you might hear things from folks who have money of like, you know, you need to really count your blessings and everything that you have is, you know, you are lucky. And then that can also pass on a message to folks who grew up in that household that money is a bad thing and you should feel shame to have money. So it goes so many different ways. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's like the final frontier, you know, again, prior to pivoting into this work, I spent so much time talking about depression and anxiety and talking about it at a, in a community level, right? I would go to schools, universities, libraries, um, hospital systems, and talk about the differences between normal sadness and depression and normal anxiety and clinical anxiety. But when it comes to money, it's even more stigmatized. So I think it's really, really important that we just have conversations like this. And I encourage your listeners, if they're like, ooh, that money stuff is like kind of <laughs> giving me the goosebumps. It's kind of freaking me out a little bit. That's a cue to, to, to stay here, to stay tuned in. Because just like anything, the more we familiarize ourselves with it, the more we engage with it, the less intimidating it is. And for so many of us, particularly folks who are socialized as women, we're told that money is out of our realm, right? We don't, we're, we're not smart enough to get it. It's for the men to handle, you know, as recently as 2017 studies show that we raised boys and girls differently around money. We raised girls to be um, good savers. And we raised boys to think about how they can ask for more money, how they can negotiate. So even the ways that we're teaching children about money directly and indirectly still show up. Um, so it's really, really important that we have these conversations. Wow. Uh, yes, I totally agree. I am curious, um, Lindsay, you had mentioned earlier shame and guilt being something that, and, and then you said stories, um, about that people have about money. Um, and that just being something that really drives behavior that's emotion-based. And I'm curious, can you give us some examples either from your personal life or just things that you hear a lot from clients that you work with? What are some of these, like, why do people feel shame about money? Why do people feel guilt about money? What are some of the stories you're hearing? Mm -hmm. Well, the personal finance industry has really set itself up to shame and blame consumers, right? So if you Google personal finance books, the first page of Google is going to be dominated by people who are going to tell you that you're dumb if you have debt, you're stupid if you haven't started a retirement account, you know, what's wrong with you if you can't adhere to a budget, right? There's a lot of harmful language within the personal finance space. So if I'm a person who's just getting started understanding the basics of financial literacy, and I go to Google and type in personal finance books, and the first messages that I'm getting are that I'm dumb and I'm behind and that I'm stupid, of course it's going to make me feel terrible, and it's going to reinforce that I don't deserve to understand money or that I'm too far behind to start engaging with my money. And it's really, really problematic. So if we just think, let's just take guilt and shame for a second, and I'll bring it back to money. But if we think about guilt and shame as cousins of emotions, they're related, but they're a little bit different in that guilt is external. I did something bad. I made a mistake. Whereas shame is internal. I am bad. I am a mistake. And when it comes to money, 
If we make a mistake with money, external guilt, the personal finance space often tells us, yeah, you did and you deserved it. So we start internalizing, I'm bad with money. I'm doomed to X, never be able to save, always be in debt, not be able to move out of my parents' house, right? So this guilt and the shame really sets us on this dangerous spiral of feeling like we don't have access to the basics of personal finance, which is unequivocally false. <laughs> to me, money stuff is super basic. I failed college algebra proudly, <laughs> not then, but now I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, money stuff is easy in terms of the math, but again, it's the emotions that get in the way. We try out a budget, we don't stick to it. We tell ourselves we're terrible at it and we don't try again. We um, make a decision to invest in our health. We find a physician or a nurse practitioner who maybe isn't a good fit. And we tell ourselves, oh, I tried it once. I can't ever do that again, right? So we have to be really careful about, are we internalizing these things around money and making them a label of shame? Or can we kind of push them aside and separate ourselves and say, hey, I didn't stick to my budget for a month. It's not the end of the world. Hey, you know what? I'm really proud of myself for reaching out to that nurse practitioner. They weren't a good fit not the end of the world, right? How can we start to forgive ourselves for our mistakes and continue to engage with our, our money and our financial and emotional wellness? So the, the stories that you just gave were kind of when people are experiencing, you know, learning how to make a budget and, and growing in just financial literacy and, and just feeling confident that they can um, grow wealth or, or just again, stick to a budget, those kinds of things. Um, what happens in the next step? Cause I know some of our listeners are like budget, got it. You know, like what, and, and, and I, what I felt, what I learned when I started dealing and growing my money mindset through different books and, and different things, I realized like, oh my gosh, there's way more than just like, okay, I can stick to a budget. Like after that, like there's even more. So for you, how would you describe, like, what's the next thing that you see with clients? They're like, mm -hmm. you know, if maybe they come to you, they're like, I got the budget, but they're coming to you for the next thing. Or how, how, what does growth after that look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So one is that it differs between each individual or each family. But I would say in general, there are three kind of pillars of first personal finance and they're, they're all related, but I, more or less, we, we kind of go on this stair step. And the first one is, is the budget or the spending plan. That's the first pillar, in my opinion, of personal finance. Then that second pillar is really saving for short-term goals. So this is things like an emergency fund, um, saving for a vacation, saving for a down payment. So things that are, you know, one to five years away. And then the final one is investing in your future. And that can look like investing money in a retirement account. It can look like setting up um, a life insurance plan. It can look like paying down your college debt. And of course, like the, the line that kind of connects them all is making sure that no matter whether you're working on a budget, you're saving for the short-term goals, or you're investing in your future, that you're always, to the best of your ability, 
spending and saving and investing in alignment with your values. So if I'm a person who really values sustainability and community, it behooves me to spend my money in accordance with those values, which may mean shopping locally as much as possible, going to the farmer's market as much as possible, um, not doing Amazon Prime when I can help it, right? So all of those different things are in alignment with my values. Um, and then like Allison, let's use you for example, if you're a runner and that's a big value to you, then it would make sense for you to pay for new running shoes quarterly since you go through them pretty quickly. It would make sense for you to ensure that you're working with a healthcare provider who knows the unique needs of your fitness goals. It would make sense to make sure you either have, you know, a stretch physiotherapist or massage therapist available to help ensure that you prevent injuries and can continue to strengthen and lengthen those muscles, right? It would be beneficial for you to spend money on food that fuels your body. Right. So that would be like a more granular example. Um, but to, to answer your question, there are kind of three different pillars, but the through line is always going to be values based. I'm so curious when, when clients come to work with you, then do you find that maybe most or all of them are disconnected from their values compared mm -hmm. to their bank account or their money then? It's interesting. So sometimes death, but often. Oftentimes we don't even have the opportunity to assess whether or not we're spending in alignment with our values. So when I do a little values assessment and we dig into their spending, sometimes it'll be a relief for people where they are like, oh my gosh, I actually am doing better than I thought, right? Again, this fear of, of being behind or being left out. And so for some people, it's just the validation of I'm already doing it. I just because there's very few people in the personal finance space who are affirming that this is a good choice, I'm feeling like I'm doing the wrong thing, right? So, so again, a lot of the noise in the personal finance space is don't travel until you've paid off all of your student loans. Don't buy avocado toast if you have bread at home, right? Yeah. All of those types of things. So a lot of my clients come in and they feel like they're doing it wrong. But when we look at it, their numbers are fine and they're just choosing to spend differently than somebody who's spewing out these blanket statements. Got it. Um, interesting. So you feel like a lot of people and, and this is interesting, but like your, what you're touching on is in some ways, just a lack of people encouraging or, or saying, Hey, you are hitting, you're hitting your goals. Like people just coming in and having no idea, like, I just feel awkward about money. And even if they're doing okay, no one's telling them. Um, I'm exactly, so exactly. And, and one of the questions I knew I wanted to ask you, this makes me think of the financial anxiety again, um, is, you know, it, you financial anxiety is, is common, right? It's, it's ubiquitous almost. It seems like everybody has it in some way, shape or form. And, and I think that even for myself, I've seen myself grow in it. And I, then I see more areas to grow in, but how would you have an area where you would describe like where financial anxiety comes from? Like when you're digging in with someone, is there something that you're thinking about? Yeah. So interestingly, but probably not surprisingly, our relationship with money is more or less set by the time we're about eight years old. Because if you think of the way that our brains grow and develop, they're doing the bulk of their development between the ages of zero and seven, zero and eight. So oftentimes when we roll back to what were the messages you were getting about money in your household as a child, 
that gives us a lot of good data as to why we might be financially anxious as adults. So if I grew up in a household, let's say, where um, I had parents who were constantly arguing about money, and that was something that I heard all the time. Every paycheck day, I was hearing them fight about who spent what or who didn't work enough. I was always hearing things about how we couldn't afford to do X, Y, and Z. Then I might've soaked up that money is something dangerous Money causes fights and money makes people who are in love argue with each other. Mm. So as an adult, I might get into partnerships where I'm terrified to talk about money because I'm certain that if I bring it up, my financial anxiety shows up as if I talk about money, it will be problematic. It will cause the person I love to fight with me, right? So it can show up in our relationships as well. So that's an example of how it might show up, um, but yeah, if we roll back to what was going on in childhood, it can really help. And for the people who are saying, well, my parents didn't talk about money or money wasn't a topic of conversation, that data is just as important because that subliminal message is money's impolite to talk about. It's rude. It's not appropriate. <laughs> so that right. can also show up in your financial anxiety. If I'm a person who's going to negotiate a new job or negotiate for a raise and I've bought into this idea that money is rude to talk about, I might be sabotaging my income trajectory by not advocating for equal pay or for fair pay. So it really impacts so many different aspects of our lives. Which then impacts how much money you actually have, but then you feel anxious that you don't have enough money. But sometimes the root cause is like, you're, you're not even comfortable making more money, period, but you just feel, mm-hmm. you feel caught and you want to, you want to blame someone else or be grumpy about like, you know, minimum wage or something, but you also just feel bad or feel like you're not allowed or feel shame that you can't ask for more money, um, for, for X, Y, Z reasons of guilt or shame or social expectations. It's interesting to me. Um, and we actually have a podcast episode on here, uh, where we talk about our relationship with money in ways that we can delve in and look at it. And one of the questions that I shared in it is asking, and I did this with another coach that I had just because, I mean, I had so much to grow in, in so many areas. And this coach was just combing through everything, including money. And I asked the question, or I was supposed to answer the question. What was my first memory with money? Like the, cause right. Cause there's actually a first moment where you have this recollection of like, oh, that was like, like you can have memories before that, but the first moment you're aware that money exists. Right. And everybody's is different. Like sometimes it's like, oh, I remember getting 25 cents so I could buy a gumball. Or I remember my mom saying I couldn't buy the movie I really wanted. Um, or I remember, you know, I remember finding money on the ground and being excited, whatever it is. My first memory was, um, my parents showing me a piggy bank that had like three slots, spending, saving, and giving. And they talked about putting percents into it. Literally don't remember why they trusted a five-year-old with percentages, but they're like, for every $1, you would put 10 cents into the savings category and you would put 10 cents into the giving. And that leaves you with how many cents. And that was my first memory. Um, and, and everybody's is different. And so like, that's a great journaling exercise that I recommend people do to just sit down and be like bare bones. Like where, where was that first memory? It's going to be in that zero to eight year range. The second thing mm-hmm. that we talked about was like asking yourself questions of what do you remember hearing in the household? Just like what you said. Um, and 
I find that I I'm in several business groups and business women, like we run businesses, like we are taking care of both our own personal finances and the business finances. And like they have, there's all these women that have these really sad stories about their first memories being not having enough to eat or like, just like really heavy things and realizing like that is affecting, even if you have plenty of money at age 20, 30, 40, you know, even if you have lots of money, you still feel like you're in that five-year-old who doesn't have enough money. Like, and so that's going to really affect that anxiety in your life. And so, um, when someone works with you, you know, I'm sure that that is like helping them reconnect with like, that's not where you're at. Let's heal that. Like let's work into your values. Let's have money become a vehicle of joy, not a vehicle of grief. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, one of the other thing I wanted to bring up or which is just so fascinating about what you do is that the zero to eight year old range is interesting. I'm a really big fan of a man, Gay Hendricks. He's a psychologist and he wrote the book, The Big Leap. And Mm -hmm. I've totally talked about it on this podcast before. And in the book, he talks about something called an upper limit, which is Mm -hmm. how happy we feel like we're allowed to be. And he's like, I want you to think of like a thermometer um, or or a thermostat and no, yeah, thermometer. Cause that tells you how get the two mixed up, but a thermometer says like how warm you are. Right. And he's like, everybody by age two is what his research shows by age two, you have set how happy you're allowed to be. And happiness is like a conglomerate of like maybe relational satisfaction, you know, wealth satisfaction, um, uh, health satisfaction, like all these different things. And that when people trip their upper limit, when they get basically too they get more than they feel that they're comfortable with. Their brain will put them into a, a salvation mode and say, okay, this is unsafe. You're actually too happy. We don't know what to do here. This is uncomfortable. And people will end up use the word sabotage, self-sabotaging mm-hmm. and saying, okay, um, in some ways people self-sabotage. The most common ways actually he theorizes is anxiety. Basically, mm-hmm. Um, he, he works with people who are millionaires or business owners or whatever, and something shifts. Maybe they get the first relationship they're in where they feel happy and, but then they start making really poor financial decisions or they are in a really happy relationship and then they get a pay raise and now they're fighting with their spouse all the time. And it's like, that's their upper limit triggering. And so it can be so helpful to have somebody walking us through, you know, how do I, am I allowed to be this pain-free in my body? You know, sometimes my clients get anxious because their bodies start to feel better. And they're just worried. Like they're going, they're kind of taking themselves back of I'm only about to be 63 degrees happy, but they mm-hmm. get to 65 or 68. And they're like, ah, what if everything breaks and their brain proactively either can make them anxious, have anxious thoughts, um, all these things. And we need to create a new norm. He talks about how we create a new upper limit by, by actually being present by, by Mm -hmm. sitting and breathing in the moment and just inviting ourselves to expand. And I think the work that you're doing is like inviting someone to expand into a more greater level of comfort with money. Mm -hmm. We had a Raina Legrand on the podcast and she shared that she's actually a client of yours. She, she openly shared that (laughs) she's, and she said that, that you were a huge part of her journey of even even saying to herself, I'm allowed to make more. I'm so Mm -hmm. curious when that is another thing that I feel like is, is 
it is a very complicated and, and it's easy to say, maybe hard to do type thing for someone to really absorb. I am allowed to make more. Tell me, how do you work with clients in that? What does that look like? Oh, well, thank you for, for just giving folks that primer on, on this idea of an upper limit problem, because it's so common. And especially if we are in a society that rewards us for saving money and buying things on sale, it can be really hard to feel like you're doing the right thing if you are asking for more money or if you are safely spending money. So I wanna be clear that I'm not working with my clients to like spend all of their money and not have any money in the bank, right? But my job is to say, right? There's nothing wrong with earning more money. And I think a lot of people, when they hear me say that they cringe, they're like, how can you say that out loud? Right. And a lot of the pushback that I get is like, there's, there's, there are a lot of grains of truth in what they're saying, right? If somebody, if I say to you, it's okay to make more money, it makes sense that you might push back and be like, well, is that going to make me greedy? What about people who make less? That doesn't seem right. And my whole stance on this is that Financial justice is a huge point where we need to advocate for our own financial wellness and for others' financial wellness. And for example, if I'm in a job and I negotiate a raise for myself, that essentially props the door open for somebody else to earn that type of money when another position like that opens up. So to me, it's about, it's another level of community care. It's another level of self-care when we can advocate for increased income. And unless you're somebody who's like a Jeff Bezos, you (laughs) aren't probably corrupting people on your path to earning more money. And I also believe that you can have both. I think a lot of people think you can have money or you can be a good person. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but I think they're often sold to us as that. If you think about people who are kind of caricatures of people with money, you have like the, the cartoon, uh, what's, what's the duck that goes swimming in like all the money. One of those characters, I don't oh, know. somebody um, can think of it. Yeah, like Scrooge, Scrooge, Scrooge yeah. Duck. Yeah, it's, yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's the Disney version of the telling of Scrooge, and yeah, he swims in money. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And yeah, and then the actual Charles Dickens Scrooge is kind of that same thing of like you know these these crotchety people who are you know really stingy with their money and who are exploitative. But I think there are ways to give back to ourselves and give back to our communities when we earn more money. To me earning more money, especially for folks who are traditionally marginalized in the U.S., women, people of color, people who are trans, disabled, when we can put more money in the hands of those people, that actually improves our communities overall. Statistically speaking, women are more likely to give back to their communities, donate money to charities and things like that. So it's not about having this money and hoarding it. It's about earning this money and then having it flow out after you take care of yourself. And notice I said, after you take care of yourself, because a lot of us, when we earn money and we feel like we don't deserve it, we give it away right away. And again, it could be purposeful. It could be through charity, or it could be kind of that self-sabotage way where we spend it on things that we don't need. But really what we need to do is practice holistic self-care, right? Which includes taking care of our bodies, taking care of our minds, taking care of our spirits. And we need money to do those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. If we can start 
looking at money as a neutral tool and how can we use it as an agent for positive change, that can help us to feel better about negotiating for more money, raising our fees if we're entrepreneurs and things like that. Yeah. I love that. Money is really neutral. Like, and, and that's something to grow in the feeling of like, you can cognitively be like, okay, maybe we can get on board with the idea of money being neutral and it's what you do with it. Money, but money simply amplifies what is already there. Um, there's a wonderful book I'm reading right now called thou shall prosper and it's by a rabbi. And he, it's like the 10 commandments of, and I'm, I can't remember what he says, but I think it's like the 10 commandments of prosperity or something. And his first commandment, I prosper when you prosper. And that he says, when, when you learn how to make me make a shoe and, and I don't have to make it and I pay you money for it and you prosper, I prosper. Cause now I have a shoe that's probably better than what I could have made. And he's like, when I, and so he even tells this funny story of like a rabbi, um, cause rabbis teach in story form, which is, I think is wonderful tradition. And so a, a rabbi was teaching about money and his story goes, a rabbi is walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And he's like, there's all these people jostling him in the crowd. And they're all kind of grumbling. Like there's so many people here. I hate how, how packed it is. And this rabbi just shouts out, he goes, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like Adam and I don't have to wait. And if I want bread, I don't have to wake up in the morning and find the wheat and grind it down and then make it into like a dough and then bake it. No, I wake up. And because of the people around me, it's just there. And so people prospering, he he's like, having more money is not a zero sum game. It's not, you have more money. I have more money. Now somebody else has less. And so that also gets into money mindset. And when, when, you know, you take care of yourself and I buy, when I buy shoes or when I pay a health practitioner to help me in X, Y, Z thing, which I've done multiple times, like I prosper in my body, they prosper in their business and they're able to continue serving more people. It's like not a zero sum game at all. It's only an upward spiral. Um, and so I just really like, I think that that that's just a mindset and that's just a belief system that is being ingrained and anybody who's interested in learning more about that, it's a phenomenal book. It cracks me up. Thou shall prosper. And I find that I try to, I try to push my own buttons on money. Like I try to say like, what, what is my upper limit here? Where, what are beliefs I'm holding on to that are not serving me that are not serving my community. One other thing that you said that I also liked was how we, um, you said that you first encourage your clients to take care of themselves. And, and you said, sometimes they'll give it to charity. Uh, it's not always like just like buying shoes or something, but they'll maybe do that. Another thing I see is like women, being more willing to spend money on their spouse or their kids in any way, whether that's clothing or food or healthcare, I especially see it with healthcare kids will get all the money and the parents are dying. <laughs> like mm -hmm. they are miserable. They have all these health problems and they don't, they're not willing to feed themselves first in some ways of that. Like you're on the airplane and you put on the gas mask or the, the mask that gives you air that has gas the good kind <laughs> anyways. Um, and so it, it, it's like this, it's this inner drive where we feel we're not allowed to take care of ourselves and it shows up in how in the flow of our cash and in our anxiety <laughs> and, and then, then in the shame and guilt of like, if I pay money for myself, do I now have shame and guilt? And are we just avoiding that even accruing? 
Yeah. Yeah. And we see it so much in folks who are nearing retirement age where they have sacrificed so much of their financial well-being. Maybe they've paid for their children to go to college. Maybe they've given them money for weddings or down payments on homes. And then they look in their retirement account and are like, oh my gosh, it's not where I thought it would be. And what I almost always tell both adult children and parents alike is like, you need to focus on the older generation in that like the older generation needs to be saving their own money and investing in retirement because the younger folks have time on their side to earn back money and invest. Um, so if if a, a person is, who's listening to this is in that sandwich generation where they're taking care of older parents and they also have children, you actually want to put more money as wild as it sounds towards caring for the older adults because the younger children have time on their side for their money to, to kind of accrue interest and things like that. Very interesting. Well, before we end off here, I am so curious. I would love for you to answer what are some techniques or actions that someone could take to combat financial anxiety? Mm, So it's, really simple. And somebody's going to be like, really, Lindsay, that's your advice. But first just notice it, right? So notice when and where and how that financial anxiety shows up. And one of the best ways is to riff on one of the exercises that you gave earlier, Allison, and that is to check in with how you're feeling about money. And if somebody's like, I don't know what that means, think about how it feels feels when you get paid. Think about how it feels when you hand your credit card over to buy groceries. Think about any of the times that you're engaging with money and notice the thoughts and the feelings that come up and take note of them. Start to just kind of do like a money diary in a way and start to pinpoint, are there certain areas where my anxiety is spiking? Do I always get anxiety when I'm getting paid? Do I always get anxiety when I'm spending money? What is the the theme there? And start to just with curiosity and kindness, notice what it is. And then of course, the goal is not to eliminate anxiety. Anxiety is a normal, healthy part of our lives. It's a healthy emotion, but rather how can I dial it down? So if it's at a seven out of 10, how can I dial it down to like a four or five, just something that's a little bit more manageable. And one of the things that you and I've talked about today is the importance of just talking about money. So finding other people to talk to about it can help dial down that shame and that anxiety. And the beauty of the internet, as much slack as it gets, is that you can find lots of online communities of folks who are having these conversations. Sometimes that can feel more safe or more comfortable than like, you know, asking your neighbor, golly gee, like, how did you refinance your house, right? That might feel a little bit uncomfortable. So finding other people who you can talk about money with. That's great. Yeah, I love the point on just like, a money journal or keeping an eye on those things. I feel like I, when you said that, I hadn't realized, I started thinking about, you know, when do I have positive experiences? And I even encourage people on one of our podcasts, our money podcast episode, which we'll link in our show notes. But um, we realizing like, I try to have really exciting experiences of money of like, I'm so excited. Like this is a really positive thing. So by the time I bought my printer, for example, I had decided to turn my story around. I was like, be so excited. This printer is going to work. And like, every time I'm looking at it, even I'm like, every time you work, I know I chose to invest in myself. I know I'm no longer wrestling with this old printer. Mm -hmm. And every time I pay a new practitioner, I know I'm so excited that I have this opportunity to do this. Every time I have automatic withdrawals into savings accounts, I'll go and check that saving account on my payday when it automatically puts in there. I'm like, Oh, look, it's growing. Mm -hmm. Um, and just make sure 
that I had all these positive things, but I also realized, wow, I've had a couple anxious moments with money that, you know, didn't last super long, but then was like, that's super interesting. And what a great tool to Mm -hmm. even just notice it step-by-step. You don't have to, you don't have to figure it all out all at once, but just say, okay, I'm going to take note of when I pay my credit card bill on my phone, how do I feel? I'm going to take note of when I see a new bill in the you know mail. I got a bill for healthcare recently. Those things always come at you when you're not expecting it, right? You're like, seriously, I thought this was done. Mm-hmm. More reasons to dislike insurance, but you know, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, just love that idea. And then your second, um, option was finding, finding people. And, and I really hope that for our listeners, even this podcast is just encouraging you. Like people are having this conversation. Mm -hmm. You're not alone in your head. And even if you feel relatively okay with your finances, if you're seeing these moments of like, I'm not allowed to buy that new printer. I am like, I have to, I'm not allowed to spend money on myself or I recently spent money on my children, but I feel bad about buying myself something that's going to help me sleep or whatever it is. Um, just really realizing like there's more, there is so much more. And, mm-hmm. um, we hope that I'm, and thank you so much, Lindsay, for helping encourage our listeners today. And just even starting this conversation and even, Hey, pe- even people knowing there is such a thing as financial therapists. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Lindsay, I know that some of our um, clients and listeners will love to connect with you and just learn more about you. Where can we find you online and how can someone work with you further if they want to? Yeah. So my website is called mind money balance, M I N D. My Instagram handle is the same. And so is my podcast. It's of the same name where we talk about the emotional side of money. Um, and what I didn't mentioned today is that there are four unique financial archetypes that we tend to fall into that, that give us some insight as to why we save or why we spend or why it's important for us to work. And if you're curious about learning a little bit more about your unique financial archetype, I've got a free quiz. It's at www.mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. And you can take it there and learn a little bit more about your unique money personality. I've taken it. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) When I learned about it, I was like, I'm taking it now. So definitely we will have that link of the show notes. Y'all you can check it out, find out what your money archetype is, get some deeper insight into you, into yourself and check out Lindsay's podcast. Cause who doesn't love a good podcast? That's why we're here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I know our listeners are just going to be thinking more about money and being more hopeful for the future and being, having positive relationships, exciting relationships with money. So thank you so much for bringing your wisdom today. Happy to be here and chat about my favorite topic. All right, everyone. I hope you loved that episode with Lindsay Bryan Podvin. Again, go check out her Mind Money Balance, her podcast, her website, connect with her on Instagram. I so enjoyed my conversation with her and was just reinvigorated in my own life of ways that I can continue to have a positive money mindset so that every area of my life is positively impacted and my full freedom and full health in my life. Well, if you love this episode on the Better Belly Podcast, we have so much more coming down the line. So subscribe so you never miss a beat. And if you thought of a friend while you were listening to this podcast, I encourage you take a screenshot and share it with that friend. I cannot count how many times someone says, 
I listened to your podcast and it just meant so much to me. And so you could be changing the life of someone else just by sharing something and saying, hey, this made me think of you. I hope it blesses you. Other ways that you can support this podcast is by leaving a rating and review. We have more and more of y'all doing that. So thank you so much. It's awesome to see our ratings come in and reviews and love to see more. It just lights my day up to see whenever you guys leave a review and how this podcast is impacting your life. Other ways that you can stay in the conversation with us is by following us on Instagram and Facebook at Better Belly Therapies. I love connecting with y'all and it means so much if you drop by and said hi. And as a reminder, our motto, miracles are immediate, but healing takes time.